And now, when did that come out? Part of the Real Change Movie Podcast. Thank you for setting your phasers to download, and welcome to another episode of When Did That Come Out? An ongoing two-man journey covering an entire year of film and 12 movies that came out for every month of that year. I'm your host, Charlie Stabile, joined, as always, by my best friend, William Rankin. Will, how you doing? One damn minute, Admiral. (laughs) Dude, that's so weird, because I've seen this movie so many times, and this time was the first time I ever heard that, and I just perked up, like, why would he say that? <laughs> but, but anyway, how you doing, bud? Doing all right? I'm, I'm doing pretty good on that. I'm on, I'm on some LDS. LDS. Oh, God. Well, if it isn't already obvious, uh, today we are in the month of November of 1986, and we are looking at Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Now, uh, well, let's see. I got into Star Trek like as a fan, like a real fan, I guess when we were living together, because you were a fan since you were a kid, um, and when we, we've got a lot of great memories of watching Star Trek together, and I do remember the first time I ever saw Trek in any form was when I was a kid, and this was on TV. It was this movie, Star Trek Four, and I really enjoyed it. But you know, being a kid, you know, it's it wasn't. I, I don't know. I guess it just wasn't what I was into at the time. But uh, like. I, I know you, that um, your love of Star Trek goes back to your father, right? Oh, yeah. Like you, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you want to go into that for a bit? I mean, uh, he, you know, he—it's no wonder my dad loved Star Trek and Star Wars because in both ca- both cases, he was a farm boy who wanted to go off and do bigger things than just being there, which is essentially, you know, kind of the starting point for James T. Kirk and Luke Skywalker. Star Trek, man, like you know, the thing is for our father's generation like you know there was no dvr this was one of the coolest things you could ever imagine on television at the time so it was it was as must see tv as anything so it was one of those things that like i know he was just hooked on you know and i remember you you saw the the doctored pictures he would do like where he'd put them he would do photo he was doing photoshop before there was a computer and then you did the same thing, but for one of uh, one of my pictures. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I still have that. This yeah. this movie though, like I there there are I have vague memories of this movie when it when it came out on video, and because I, I remember there are times I remember being around the mall with my mom and my dad, and there was there was Star Trek Four stuff out. I vaguely remember this. There's not much to it, but mm-hmm. um, I would have probably been maybe only four. Because obviously, if this movie came out November of '86, it, it may not have even seen video till late '87, maybe '88. Who knows? Right. I, I, it depends. I forget. That was but, a different um, time. Yeah. No, but my favorite story I remember that you told me about your dad and, and his love of Star Trek was um, uh, you, you told me once that he had the font, the the computer font yeah, for like back, for Star Trek. Yeah, and like back way, and this is you know back when you installed fonts with with discs, right. and, and that was it. No internet to go download them now, and he would go download those to to be able to duplicate like specifically that exact font on the computer. And and it, it was, when I started using it in in papers, of course, I had to kind of pull back a little bit because it was like you can't use these for reports at school because. <laughs> 
they're not gonna dig that. But like, like the the coup de gras was like going to conventions before. Like you really like as a kid going to conventions, you're really just looking for toys to play with. That, but that's not really what are at conventions. These are toys to collect. So. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. I, the King Street Palace, you know, down in Charleston was a host to a couple of these. The one we saw together was Walter Koenig coming in as uh, the special guest. So that was neat. But, I mean, m- my dad's nerdery, like Pete, with Power Klingon, the book, and the audio tape about how to speak Klingon. Jeez. <laughs> I don't remember ever saying anything in it. It was. I think it was more just like... Oh, this would be fun just to kind of have or whatever. And it was like, all right. I remember once I tried to listen to it and I was like, this is way too serious. Like, this is not fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I always find Star Trek to be the most enjoyable when it doesn't take itself too seriously, but not to the point of something like, I guess, uh, the worst parts of uh, part five, where it's like, ah, oh, they went a little too far. And it's so funny to me because on paper, if you just were to, if you've never seen these movies, the the first six, and you just read the plots, it sounds like far and away this is the worst one, uh, and it's it's damn near the best one. Uh, surprisingly, uh, I guess before the J.J. Abrams uh, movies, when you think of well, what's the most accessible Star Trek movie? Like the one that you could show to someone who's not a fan, and this is the one that always jumped out to me. Yeah. And I think I think that's proven to be the case because uh, prior to the JJ ser- uh, franchise or the JJ offshoot, um, this was the highest grossing one b- by a pretty decent margin. I think it, it did really well for its time, and I think it was because of that accessibility that they that they applied to it and were able to get them into modern times and basically do once again a fish out of water story. <laughs> But only much more effectively. And isn't this the same company? Isn't this? Didn't Paramount do Crocodile Dundee? Yeah. Oh yeah, they're killing it. Yeah. This is quite a year. This is quite a year for them. Yeah, just with those two films alone. Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, and, my, and that was a thing too. My father, he he never liked Star Wars. He never liked Star Trek. So I never got introduced to that stuff from him. I got it from, you know, people I went to school with and stuff like that. And, you know, he <laughs> even within the last five, six years, and he'd come into a room and I'd be watching it. And then, you know, I could just see the eye roll. And I'm like, oh, just let the, let me have this. You know? <laughs> like, like, I actually really do enjoy this. Well, um, remember, though, in, in like, you know, when we were younger, Star Trek, by the time we were, you know, of age of our parents, when they were younger, may have watched it or whatever. I never found it was as cool to tell people that you watched it. You could, Oh, it wasn't. What, liking Star Wars was one thing, but once you crossed over, you know, into uh, the final frontier... It was over. Like people, people were not as not as accessible to you because it was like, oh man, that's that that deep cutting science fiction stuff. And it's like, what about the one where they save the whales? <laughs> right, and that's what that's the one this one's known for. Is that the one with the whales? You know, right. I, I always remember being asked right. that. I think my favorite just eye roll of, of from uh, parental overview comes from my mom because my my mom just could not stand Star Trek, and she finally told me that uh, when she was in high school, she got she was getting picked up for a date. And she heard the doorbell ring, and she goes and looks through the peephole to see who it is, like it would be anybody else. But whoever this guy was was doing the Vulcan hand symbol. <laughs> it was Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Add another one to the list with Yafet Kodo. Patty! <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, you know, like my dad, I mean, he would he would he he took an interest in things that I liked. I remember he actually took me to the theater to see uh, First Contact. Yeah, and uh, I loved that movie as a kid. Like I thought that was the coolest movie. And then he took me to see Insurrection, and that movie killed Star Trek for me until JJ. Uh, decided to come along and then i just started like looking at everything and so this is a hell of a franchise like and it's really good and but for me it all comes back to the i remember the first time i saw star trek 4 at my grandmother's house yeah so yeah so let's let's give it star trek 4 so this is this is interesting because as accessible as it is i always looked at this movie as the end of a trilogy uh, because it's wrapping up the it's while while the the whale stuff is going on, they're also wrapping up the plot lines and and the things that happened in the previous two movies with um, Wrath of Khan and more, more importantly the search for Spock. Because I mean, what happens to Spock in those two movies is directly related to his entire arc throughout uh, Star Trek Four, but it didn't seem to hurt the movie a whole lot. Because uh, they pretty much only spend, I want to say, the first five minutes on it with that weird trial that they'd have with the with uh, the, the the Klingon. I don't even know who that is. Yeah, they somehow got the footage of Star Trek Three. <laughs> That's the best. It's the best. I never understand no. this in movies. I never understand this when this right, espe- especially like the Rocky movies. Right. Oh, the Rocky <laughs> movies are the best for this. <laughs> How'd they get these angles? <laughs> like, like. I, I can buy the interior of the uh, of the Enterprise with the with the Klingons, but once they show the exterior of the Enterprise exploding during the trial, I'm just like, hey, cameras in space. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Leonard Nimoy. So Le- Leonard Nimoy. Uh, this was his uh, second and final um, directing effort for the franchise. Uh, he he had done Part Three. And I guess they liked enough. They did enough with Part Three, even though Part Three isn't as beloved as some of the other movies in the franchise. It's still a pretty good movie. Um, I always use Part Three as my example whenever anyone likes to throw out the odds and evens argument uh, with the Star Trek films because yeah, Three is is fairly fairly well made. And uh, it's very cheap. Like it's, it's so cheap. painfully cheap when you watch it. Like you know, I mean that on just an effects scale, like next to Star Trek Five, it's the one that looks the most like. Wow, you have a TV budget for a motion picture. Exactly. So it, it definitely feels like, and even in terms of story, they're like, we can let's let's get to just the basics on this, and that's 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 always like if, if there is kind of a drawback, it's that, and like, it's a movie where unfortunately, like when you go when you think about what happens in Star Trek Three, it's the Enterprise blowing up, you've got uh, David Marcus being killed, you know, Kirk's son dying, yep. all this stuff that all this, it's, it, there's a lot of downfall in this movie. Like it's even bleaker than wrath of Khan in terms of, and wrath of Khan is heavy, heavy stuff, especially by the end of it. So what, that's, what's, that's, what's awesome about four is that it's time to kind of, even though like when you look at it, the stakes are actually the most they've ever been. Compared to the right. other two movies, the stakes are incredibly high, and yet it's the most lighthearted. We're having a I good know. time. It's it's a hell of a juggling act, and and that further um, implements my 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 trilogy argument with the second one, part three, <laughs> being the dark one. Because yeah, you're right. Like that movie, like those. God, yeah, the David Marcus killing scene is always a little tough to watch, and it's not because you get to actually see like the knife going or whatever, but his scream always gets me. Uh, it's it's very just un, unnerving, and uh, and Kirk's bothered by it. 
uh, for pretty much, I guess, the rest of that movie. But by this one, I mean, he's he's already <laughs> doing Kirk stuff, you know, macking on on women. <laughs> it's 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 really quite a trip. And it's 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 William Shatner I, and his bizarre uh, comedic sensibilities. This is the, this movie is the first of, of, of this is the fourth movie, obviously, in the movie franchise. It's the first one that feels like the television show again. When you go back and watch it... In the right way. Right, exactly. Because the thing is, like, time traveling is a Star Trek thing. They love to do this every now and then. Pull this card out and play with it. And and the times they they, they would do it in the show, it was pretty damn good. You know, like, of course... City on the Edge of Forever... There it is, is. is. ...is an iconic episode having to deal with, you know, the the risk and the reward at times of, of time travel, what it can do and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, this one, you know, the it, it all, it, especially like Shat, Shatner is fascinating in this. And the reason I, I say that is because when you, we, I think now with the Chris Pine rendition of, of, of Captain Kirk, I think we've gone back and tried to like reconfigure how we imagined the whole James Kirk character. The thing is, the William Shatner version of James Kirk up until Star Trek Three is as duty bound as any Starfleet officer there ever was. He wasn't like he wasn't a rebel kid out there doing whatever he wanted. The guy followed the book. And the thing is, by the end of three, like he's basically just like, F it. I'm you know, I'm going to rescue my friend, basically. And I'm going to steal this ship to do it. And the guy says, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Which is hilarious because it's like, um, I, I already don't. I'm an admiral. So I really don't. <laughs> so thanks, Doogie Hauser's dad. You know, that's cute. Right. But anyway, anyway, the final thing I was just saying, I was like, it, he seems to be at his most relaxed in this because it's just sort of like, you know what? I know what's coming for me by the end of this movie. Like, I'm probably going to be uh, reprimanded pretty heartily. But maybe if we save the day, it won't be so bad. I don't know. It's one of my favorite things to do when watching <clears throat> the six movies is um, Shatner gives a slightly different performance in every single one. And because f- I want to say, to piggyback off what you said, four and five is a very comedic, just kind of laissez-faire type of Captain Kirk. And then by the time we get to six, it's right back to that kind of Kirk that we have in, in Star Trek two and three. And I think this is because of the directing. I want to say that that's what it's for. Because I always found that the best Shatner performances in these movies were the Nicholas Meyer films. The other thing that's nice in this, too, is a departure from the other movies in conjunction with what you're saying is we don't have to treat everybody like they're old. Like, there is there is this motif about age and aging and mm-hmm. maybe being, you know, uh, being past your prime. This is something that comes up in... Pretty much like Star Trek's a little bit in one, definitely in two, mm-hmm. even in three. It's the whole theme. It's in, and that's why, like, by the time we get through four, and by Star Trek five, like, like Shatner really looks like he starts to really look old. Like, and Nimoy, too. Nimoy, I, I, it's really funny when you see him and his dad next to each other. You really don't necessarily think they're father and son by the way they look. Right. So, you know, man, like, that's... Uh, that's what's kind of interesting about their about the the performance and the performance in this movie of of even all the characters like they kind of finally let that motif go for a little bit and again it gets back to them kind of cutting loose here a little bit yeah then that's that's a, to get back to the uh 
the time travel aspect and how this kind of goes back to what the original series did because it really is it's like like yeah three has the cheap aspects that the original series had which is not a quality you want to take especially 20 years after that series ended but star trek was basically just getting on the enterprise and going planet to planet and and having an adventure on that planet and that's basically what they do here it's just back in time you like City on the Edge of Forever. Um, what's another one? Yesterday is Tomorrow. Like, like a piece of some... the action is another one, too. Oh, God, I love that episode. Um, yeah, that one's so good. But the thing that bothers me about time travel in Star Trek is that it never works the same way twice. I, I, so we're dealing with time travel in Star Trek Four, and it's just kind of said by McCoy, well, we're just going to lap around the sun <laughs> at full throttle and, and just launch back in time. Uh, all right. How yeah. weird is like like and I didn't catch this until watching it this time is like Spock has just gone through being like plugged essentially into a computer and like just re-downloading all the information. He knows everything. He's the Highlander. He knows everything. <laughs> but 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 you know what I mean like after after his brain and his mind his katra all that stuff is re like is correctly configured again. He's got he's got to re-download essentially everything that he he doesn't have anymore. He didn't have in his history. And the thing is like he is probably at his most logical next to where he was at kind of in the motion picture for a time. And the thing is, like, he is the one who comes up with the, the, the most insane idea to do this. It's his idea. And that's why... Oh, to get the whales? No, to go back in time. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Of all people, the guy who just went through, like, like who is as, as, as procedural as you can be... And it's his idea, like, yeah, man, I got an idea. Let's lap this thing around the sun a couple times, or how many, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll end up back in '86 and uh, or whatever. It right is. where we need to be. Right. Yeah, it's ah, it's so weird, but I mean, this movie it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really seem to care a whole lot about necessarily making a whole lot of sense. It's just really just a fun movie, and and I think that's that's why I kind of just let it go. Because, uh, I mean, I love time travel stories. I always have. But, it's I mean, I'll be honest. It's always kind of bugged me a little bit in Star Trek. Because Star Trek was always like the hypothetical future that we would have. And I love whenever they would time travel, it would always be to some place that existed already in real life Earth. You know, it, w- it wouldn't be like, oh, we're going to go back to the year 2150 or something. And just like, right, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, so it's like 1986 San Francisco. Just... Okay. Okay. And so. think about think about this though. This is what's interesting about that is like that's why those time travel episodes work because they're time traveling back to time periods we can connect with, and that's right. what's really cool. And that's why this movie is probably the most Roddenberry, pure Roddenberry, of the Star Trek films, next to number one, because the, you notice the contrast. Start the Captain Kirk and crew. They're always they're almost they're butting heads against. Um, they're butting heads against money and these things that in our time are essential, but in their time are not money. Is now not- I read that this was the first time that that was ever mentioned in, and- in all of star Trek, which I don't remember that, but that, that there's no monetary value in the 23rd century. Right. Is that true? I think yeah. it's right. Cause like the thing is like, I think Roddenberry's ideals about star Trek were always that it was a it was a time when there was no conflict, which is problematic if you're doing a dramatic 
TV shows. Of course, you, you have to have conflict. But in in that world, there, there's no conflict. There's everybody is everybody loves everybody, and that there isn't like the there isn't this necessity for money to be able to achieve a certain thing in life. Everybody does everything for the greater good. So sounds kind of like heaven. But remember, though, the thing is that what you're talking about in terms of that part of the movie, that's the Nick Meyer part of this movie. Because he... The San Francisco part. Yeah. Everything in the past is written by Nick Meyer. Everything outside of that is Harv Bennett, who wrote it. Mm -hmm. And that's... And again, that's... Feels like it, too. And it's, it's just one more just tribute to why Nick Meyer is the most important person in the history of Star Trek. Because, I mean, that's why that... That's why the bad, the two, the two parts of that trilogy work. Obviously, the, the you know number three is fine, but you can tell it's a, definitely a different person at the wheel versus two and f- and part of four in a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um. Let's see here. Uh, there's um, <clears throat> the lighthearted approach that that the movie takes is kind of in line with some of the things that they used to do in the TV show. And and it works works really well. Like it's 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 good humor. Uh, has it aged well? Uh, like, cause I mean, oh, like Spock. I mean, he knows all this stuff about Earth history and and all of the things about you know alien life forms that you know are alien to us and to Vulcans. And uh, exact change only <laughs> seems to stump him. Which I. Uh, I really, I really do like, I really do like that, and and that ties in with the paradox thing with with uh, the pair of glasses that McCoy gave Kirk in Star Trek Two, where they're trying to sell that that pair of uh, vintage glasses at the pawn shop, and I think Spock has a line like, "Well, aren't those and that the pair of glasses that Bones gave you? Yeah, that's the beauty of it. He'll give them to me again." It's like. <laughs> Uh, it's like it's like Bill and Ted logic time travel. Uh, remember the trash can, it's, right? And it kind of yeah, makes sense. Like if you right, so kind of so if you think like in the future, at some point where Star Trek Two happens, uh, McCoy will give him those glasses probably because he's like, you know what? He had to give those. He had to he had to give up that pair at the pawn shop to get some cash in 1985 or I forget whichever year it is in the 80s. We had to give him some cash in the 80s. So I was like, oh yeah. So it. And it's in this weird because, like, remember the old boy with the uh, transparent aluminum? You know that guy. That's a real thing now. Yeah, uh, I, I that blew my mind. <laughs> I was just like, what? Like, how could you predict that? That that would be a thing? And that's and that is such a great scene. Like, in terms of like the scenes that make me laugh the hardest, like uh, James Doohan plays that so well. And and that's that's kind of a thing that Star Trek Beyond seemed to borrow, which is well, let's pair everybody off. Right. Yeah. And uh, but beyond, I think, did it in a little bit of a of a smarter way where they paired off major uh, characters from the Enterprise with not not quite as higher tier. Like you got like Kirk with um, uh, Chekhov. And and instead here, it's pretty much exactly what you'd think of of who would go with who. And it it, it does seem to work, though. Get Ahura and. Uh, and Chekhov have look, looking for the nuclear vessels, which is yep. so funny, considering the you know, mm-hmm. the time that this came out, and, and actually, and it's and it's funny today now. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's come back yeah. around. Of course, it has. it's come back around. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really good stuff. And the so the the political aspect of the movie, and I hate using that word because I don't understand why saving whales is a political issue. I've never understood that 
whatsoever. Uh, I know that that's actually a hang-up of um, one of my friends about this movie, is that, oh, I just don't like it being political. I'm like, did you ever watch Star Trek at all, like the TV show? Because, I mean, it's completely laced with real political issues. I'm like, I, I, I don't get it. Like, so are you for whaling? Like, yeah. is that, is, like, like, because like, that, that's my next question. That's the next logical question. I just, like, no, you, oh, you're, you're not. Well, then what's, what's the problem? Here? Hey, man, you down with Starkist? I am. Yeah. yeah. It just, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, when people say, oh, it's just a leftist agenda and this the, and that. The like, thing that's just, the, no. The only, like, I, the, I agree with you, man. The, poli- the like, human's line? Like, the, the, well, what I was going to say is, like, when you think about just the, the plot of this movie, okay, so this probe comes into the, the normal Star Trek timeline, it goes to Earth, and it's sending out a signal for to something, but apparently it's not hearing it back, and it makes it angry enough to where it's like, you know what, I'm just going to shut everything down. Just everything down. Forget it. What? Who are you? Starfleet, shut it down. You're done. And then mm-hmm. that's... It, 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 by hook and by hook or by crook, they figure it out. Like, oh, it's the whales. Of course, that's what they're missing because we killed them all. So <laughs> that, that that's a bummer. <laughs> Isn't it just wild though that this probe journeys to Earth just so it can like you know have? How a, y'all doing down there? Yeah. <laughs> how are you? And then essentially it's like, all right, well, see you next two hundred years or whatever it is. However often it comes back, that's the only thing that's just kind of funny. It's like, so you're telling me this probe. Just it just really enjoys the conversation with the with the humpback whales, the humpback whales, not the blue whale, not the, it's this particular species of whale. It, it when you think about it, it's like that just seems so goofy, but you just accept it because right you know they they you know it's 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 our plot. We just got to get going. We got to save because the greater what's it say because the human race of it. That's what's funny is like I I've never focused on the political aspect of it. I focus on just like man, this is just kind of goofy, but oh well, I'll roll with it. Right, right, and it's <clears throat> I, I I I like that story. The way that they tie that in with whaling i think is actually really intelligent it's just the way that they go about figuring it out you know like you said with spock i mean he's just learning all of this stuff all over again and he, and just like in the tv show he's the one who deduces the solution and what they need to do and kirk's just like sounds good <laughs> wasn't really looking forward to going back to earth anyway exactly <laughs> stand trial <laughs> Yeah, yeah, let's give it a shot. And God, it's so funny too because, you know, watching the three seasons of the TV show, the animated series, and the movies, and then you get to four, and all of a sudden they are cursing like crazy. <laughs> it's always just kind of jarring to me to, you know, hear some of these things like uh, the double dumbass on you is one thing, but which I've I never mean, said in life ever. Oh no, it's it's <laughs> it's terrible. But I mean, that's it's that thing that this movie does so well. It just it just barely gets away with it like it almost crosses that line of oh god basically (laughs) like when i think of crossing the line it's star trek 5 when kirk walks onto the bridge and he's wearing that shirt that says go climb a rock and i'm like oh god (laughs) would you would you agree in a way that and and maybe it's skipping ahead a little bit here but i i i almost feel like this movie should should have ended it the whole thing the whole series of movies this, Maybe so. This was the way to go out. Like it ends in a in a in a perfect way to where it's like, man, number five in even six, and I love six, but we don't, that's not something we're going to talk about. But I love six, but it's just like, man, with everything they go through in this movie, 
And then by the time we get to, you know, we finally, all right, we got to face the music finally. It just kind of feels like, yeah, this was the way to go out. Like, this is the complete well, journey. Well, maybe. Uh, because f- five is unnecessary, like, to, to the T. I mean, it picks up pretty much where the fourth one leaves off. But six, I mean, I don't want to get into it too much, like you said, because we might cover that movie sometime down the road. But, I mean, Six is probably my favorite. Oh, I love and it. I saw it in theaters. It's amazing. It's, it's and, such a great movie. And the thing about Six is it resolves the issue of Kirk and the Klingons, like, for good. And, I, and for that reason alone, I think that movie's justified. Like, in terms of an essential part of the story and, and how it kind of... Like, there's nothing really you can do if Kirk and the Klingons, and the Klingons being okay with the Federation, if that's okay. So I also feel like, though, they had to do it because of Next Gen, because Next Gen was like, yo, dude, there's a well, Klingon hanging out on the bridge. You got to show how this kind of starts. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. and that, that does make sense. And Next Gen would start, I believe, the year after uh, Star Trek Four came out. Yeah, that was when it was really, that was, yeah, that was when Star Trek was really heating up. Again. Right, because I think you can attribute some of the credit of getting Star Trek Next Gen off the ground to Star Trek Four, yeah. and and how popular the, this movie was uh, for its time. Um, I th- th- this isn't talked about a whole lot, but I I'd, I'd love to discuss it for a second. I absolutely love the chemistry between William Shatner and Catherine Hicks. Oh, it's great. She it's is so uh, sweet. I like, that charm. <laughs> yeah. He is so charming in this movie. He's got like this Spencer Tracy quality going on. Uh, where he's like his little asides like where he just kind of like laughs something off it's like I, why did they decide to keep this in i mean it works but i mean it doesn't really do anything for the scene but he's he, he seems like he's having such a great time uh just just being in the movie in particular the restaurant scene uh where where he has a beer and it seems like he has he's never had a beer you know i, I think it's Michelob ultra yeah, it is. It's very what they're drinking. Blatant. And Catherine, I, I love Catherine Hicks in this movie. I mean, the only other thing I know her from is that she's the mom in um, Child's Play. So, like, these are two very different kind of roles for her. But, but she's she she does exactly what she needs to do uh, to get this movie going and to get it moving along. Although, like, how easily she assimilates herself into the twenty third century is baffling to me. <laughs> just with her sitting there, Dude. just yeah, you know. <laughs> We'll try That's pretty this. cool. <laughs> like, you would think like th- there'd be a little bit of in- a little bit of insanity because like I that's one thing I love like you know it, it's stupid comparison I know but one of the little things I love in Men in Black is like where they're like yeah it's a twenty you're, it's a twenty six hour day yeah you'll get used to it otherwise you'll go insane but like it's it's like yeah everything operates on every it's completely different on this scale and I imagine like in the twenty third century like for her it's just sort of like and can I. The fact that, like, she just up and abandons everything in her time. I know. I mean, wow. she has this throwaway line where she says, uh, I have nothing to keep me here. Which is like, and, oh, okay, so we, we're... Well, that's one thing. <laughs> okay. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I mean, I say that all the time, and it's true, but, I mean, like, uh, the whole planet, <laughs> like, you, you have nothing on the entire planet in your own timeline, you're... Your parents are dead. You have no brothers or sisters. You have no nieces or nephews. I mean, it just—it's such a okay. I mean, it, it goes with the—it goes with the movie. All right, let's just go with it. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> we, it's we don't have time for backstory, so we're going to say that you have no backstory. Okay, 
All yeah. right, done. Yeah, we're just <laughs> we're just gonna keep it moving. And she has that final dialogue with Kirk, and he's like, "Well, I don't even have your phone number, and I'll, I'll never see you again." Or, and she's like, "Oh no, you will. No, we won't. <laughs> no, no. This is Catherine Hicks's first and final appearance in the Star Trek universe, and it's really a shame because I really would have liked to have seen where this could have gone with her and Kirk. I mean, there's a massive age difference, but Kirk had like the best plastic surgery you could imagine uh shatner was what early 50s when this movie came out yeah i want to say yeah i mean he looks amazing and this is probably the last time <laughs> that he does like you know because like you like said a, a good star trek five he yeah. ages a bit oh but by the time God. we get with by the time we get to six though oh. i mean not only has he aged 10 years in two but he's gained about 40 pounds she would have been a. It would have been such a cool bit if they would have stuck her in generations in that very beginning. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I would have liked that. It's just something because you're right. Like, the, it's a. It's kind of like. It, I know on the one hand you feel like oh it's kind of throwaway because she's not one of our original crew but it's like she's a pretty big part of this movie. Like I mean she is essentially the the key to getting everything accomplished in the past to get it to the future and you would just. You would hope that she wouldn't be relegated to essentially a Bond girl to where we'll see her for one movie and then never see her again, unfortunately. Right, right. And um, uh, speaking of uh, essential cast members, I know she's in the movie. I've never noticed her in the movie until the credits show up. And I go, I forgot to look for her. Where is Nurse Chapel in this movie? Nurse Chapel, I believe, is... I believe she's in that in the sequence in the beginning when you have that array of, of ships that are being affected by the probe. Mm-hmm. I think that's where she's at. She's on one of the other ships. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Because okay. I mean, I just I can never find her when I'm watching the movie. So ugh, as annoying as that is, but anyway, so these time paradoxes. Like we have to talk about this for a second. So it's it's in particular when. Uh, and first of all, I'll, we, I mean, it's bad enough we have an old lady growing a kidney in 20 minutes. Uh, like, that's the, the maximum amount of time I'm, I'm allowing for, for what happened when Bones fixes her dialysis. <laughs> like, but we get, this, we get this scene where uh, Chekhov is uh, taken, basically, for, in for questioning, uh, for trespassing. And he ends up leaving his Starfleet badge, his phaser. <laughs> right. And and there's like one more thing, and and uh, it's it's it never comes back up, and it goes into this whole motif with the movie of ah well oh man, who, who's to say he didn't invent the thing you know I just right. well well all right <laughs> just just kind of have to go with it and and I love that there's really like God I love the crew of the Enterprise but I mean they literally just break every rule that there is I mean you know that they've got stuff in there but don't go back in time like just just don't do that. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Ah, well. I mean, the thing is, Chekhov tossed him. That is a Klingon thing, too. That's not even a Starfleet uh, phaser that he tries to use on him, if I'm correct. I think... Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it? I'm trying to remember, because the thing is, they've got an assortment of Klingon stuff. Right, because it's using, the Bird of Prey. A, which, right. Well, we have to talk about that. This is the... Other than... Um, well... It might be the whole series. Uh, the Enterprise only shows up at the very end. I mean, there's no Enterprise through this uh, whole movie. You know, we have to deal. We're dealing with the Bird of Prey the whole time. So yeah, they're having to they're having to deal with all the, the stuff that, that that they have exclusively on the Klingon ship. And it's amazing how much room is on that ship. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, like, we can fit two whales. Because, like, yeah, yeah, man, because I'll tell you, like, when I was really nerding out with this, and I'll tell you one reason why I never was a huge four fan as a kid was like, yeah, there's no Enterprise, there's no space battle, so that's not that's not that's not what a kid wants to see. So I was never a big four fan until I got older and I appreciated, you know, the fact that I don't need that to enjoy a movie. But I'll tell you, the funny thing is when you look up. Um, I remember when I was a kid and I would look up like all the stuff about the ships, you know, all the stuff I could absorb about the the ships in Star Trek. And the Bird of Prey doesn't really hold that many dudes. I didn't like, think so. It doesn't hold that many. I want to say it's like even under twenty, like people it holds. That's why the fact that when I learned, I was like, they got how they how they get them whales in there, you know? There's a whole cargo bay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's how many tons? They they say it's forty. Forty. Yeah, I think I, it, I think it said it's forty because of the water. I was like, oh, we got to include the water also. Jesus, right? right. Yeah, and so. and and you know, God, how they got the math right on this? Because it's like, well, I mean, this could really screw up our our uh, our acceleration around the sun for going back. And uh, but well, you know, Spock's always your way out of that, man. Spock's like, your way out. Yeah. Uh, he is the fix-all every single time, and it's so fun watching Leonard Nimoy in this movie too in, like when I say that I, I, the, the the scene in the truck when Catherine Hicks uh, picks them up the way he plays that off I mean it, it's 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 one of those things like I, I I always know I'm watching William Shatner playing Kirk but I forget that I'm watching Leonard Nimoy playing Spock I'm just like oh that's Spock and there's this great little banter that they have that I learned was improvised where she asked him if they like Italian food and the way they just keep going with yes and no, and because Spock just does not want to do this, right? Yeah, it's it's so entertaining, and and the the movie itself is extremely entertaining, yeah. and I I really do think it's it's it is a miracle that this thing is, well, not even as good as it is. It's a great movie considering what the plot is, and and the way that it goes about itself. Because uh, it's a very Hollywoodized version of Star Trek, and, and I've heard a lot of people criticize. Like I've heard criticisms of the ending of this movie, where it's like, "Oh, it's yes." And, let's talk about that. Yeah, and and, and um, <sighs> I guess I I'm talking actually about the very very once we're past the conflict, like what hap- when the whales are in the water. No, I'm talking about when Captain Kirk or Admiral Kirk is demoted and he's given back the Enterprise. Okay. Like and one of the criticisms I heard that was very valid is you spent you spent the majority of Star Trek One and Star Trek Two with a guy who does not want to be an admiral anymore who took this job and regrets it because he's not the captain of the Enterprise anymore. That's what he really wants to do. It is said more than a few times uh, throughout those movies that he wishes he was Captain Kirk. So he breaks. Cardinal sins basically in Starfleet with what he does in Star Trek mm-hmm. Three, and so when he finally has the face up to it, it's just like you know, we'll you give know, you another ship. We'll just give you what you want. <laughs> That's essentially oh, what they agree. do. And so it's it's interesting. And and the, but the way I always, I always balance out of it, and I'm okay with it. It's like, dude, he just saved right all of you. Period. So. Maybe want to go a little bit easy on him, considering also like you know I'm sure when they go back and look at the logbooks and they're looking at like what they were doing in that five year or th- three year mission and they're like, huh, trebles, huh? Well, they did all right with that. All right, you know what? I'll give them a pass. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Now, because see, when I think of the ending, 
it, and it's it's painfully obvious that it is written by two different people because the movie does uh, the finale of the movie isn't nearly as exciting as I think it should be um, with them landing in the water, getting the whales out, and then having the probe talk to the whales. This goes on for what feels like an eternity, at least to me, uh, with the probe like, meow, meow, and then the and then the whale talking back, and really, it's really that <laughs> zoom in on the whale's eye. <laughs> Which I'm just like, yeah, just checking to see if you're enjoying the show. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Are you on board yet? I have heard, and I heard this on another podcast, them talking about Star Trek for a while ago, that there was talk of having subtitles. In this. I know. <laughs> Jesus. And that would have been the Go Climb a Rock scene. That would have been that or, for this or movie. Or the like, Rock oh Monster in Star Trek V. The... Or the or Yes. <laughs> Any of these ridiculous <laughs> ideas, yeah, because like subtitles, like like the great outdoors with the freaking raccoons or squirrels, whatever the hell those things were, yeah, like having subtitles underneath them. No, this would not have worked at all. I don't need, like, if you're with no subtitles, the probe talks, the whale talks back, the probe leaves. I don't need subtitles. Like, I need that's everything I need to know right there. You're right. Though, I the guess link okay. to that scene. Oh, it's brutal. Terminable. It's way too long. And I'm like, well, I just, I'm just like, well, what's the, what's the crew of the Enterprise doing right now? They just standing there, just watching this, just like, the hell, the hell's going on? Is it working? That's why it goes back to like the, the whole reason this is taking place. You're like, so the probe just needed to talk to it, like it was missing its friend. What? Like it's, it's, it's it's weird. Because, well, because I, I mean, I get some of this stuff, like, like. You know, when people are like, oh, why do they do whales? I'm like, that's actually a really interesting idea since whales are the oldest living species on the planet. I was like, that kind of works, that, that you have this probe that maybe visited Earth once long before humans were ever here. I, 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 I like that. But it's basically, yeah, just, you know, I know I haven't seen you in like, I mean, it's been millions of years, let's be honest. But you know, they just come over and talk to it for like two minutes. Like, I I, I don't talk to one of my good friends for like a month, and we're on the phone for like three or four hours. And and this probe just, oh, all right. And they never distinctly say exactly when it is that they re-enter uh, the you know modern Star Trek times. I'm like, is it as long as it was, like in terms of like 1986, like where they were there for like a couple of days, or did they go, did they pop right back in like Marty McFly exactly at the exact yeah. moment? Yeah, yeah. because that planet would just be devastated. And, and when, would the probe really be up there waiting for days? You know, just, you there? And, and just, <laughs> all right, I'll wait. I want to think that, like, there's somebody in the probe that's, like, looking on the computer, like, and figuring out that the humans wiped out the whales. And, like, you hey, man, did you see this? Yeah. I saw. I saw some. Wikipedia. Look at these videos. Yeah, look yeah, at these videos. Man, it's, for, for a lighthearted movie, that scene where they're looking at the videos of you know whales being oh skinned is, is it's horrifying. I mean, it's it's really tough to watch. And I feel like they actually made those those two old ladies that are in that group watch <laughs> this video because their reaction is priceless. Just oh god, you know and. And this, there's the one line in the movie, I mentioned it earlier, that, that does kind of irk me in a James Cameron kind of way, where she, you know, she's like, oh, that's not logical. Well, whoever said the human race was logical? Ugh. <laughs> oh, Seventh Cameron. heaven. <laughs> that's the other thing, I always think of her from that show. Right. <laughs> yeah, the seventh heaven connection. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's Star Trek Four. Uh, it's the highest grossing film of the original series. Said that 
I love that whenever I talk about this movie with anybody, they go, is that the one with the whales? And you're like, yeah, yeah, it's the one with the whales. But, I mean, th- this is a very well-liked movie for the most part. Like, not just by Trek fans, but non-Trek fans. Um, this movie had four Oscar nominations, which, I mean, that is a lot for a Star Trek movie, especially back then. Um, I, I honestly cannot see why I got any of those. When I watch it... No, like... I can't even... I, well, <laughs> I, well, there's two in particular, which I was like, what is this? Like... Because um, I forget the guy that did the score. Leonard the main... Ro- Leonard, Rose- Leonard Rosenman. Yeah. Okay, because I always forget how great his theme is for Star Trek Four. I really like that theme. It's very upbeat. It almost sounds Christmassy. I was like, oh, this is going to be a fun movie. And uh, and then the rest of the score happens, and I'm like, Man, none of this Dude, is really. The score uh... when Chekhov's being rescued is garbage. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> It doesn't. It sounds like it just a complete tonal miss. Like you don't get the tone of the scene, and you have like this. Uh, it, 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 I, I mean, I'm not uh, instrument wise. Like I, I cannot get deep into this, but I can just tell you when you listen to the scene where they're getting Chekhov out of the hospital, it sounds a little too uppity. All right, I'm just gonna say that. I, I just, I, I think like a '40s screwball comedy or something. I mean, just... I, I mean, it's. Overall, like I don't think that score is anywhere near. Uh, That's not James Horner. Not even close. Not even close. No. Even Cl- uh, Cliff, uh, I forget his name. Guy who did six. You know. Yeah. His, yeah. His I think the is a stronger score, is score. Goldsmith with five is 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 pretty good. Goldsmith from one is probably like as solid as it gets. You know, right. like for for his. Uh, That's best part of the movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, oh my god, look at this Enterprise for five minutes. <laughs> Is this what you wanted? Are you glad it's back? Do you like William Shatner reaction shots? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the, that one, which is, you know, it's fine. I mean, it might not have been a great year for scores. Um, even though, I mean, God, rough time I had James Horner did Aliens, which I love that score. But uh, the other Oscar nomination that kind of threw me a bit was Best Cinematography. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "There's right, like I'm not alone in that." Like, the, like uh, is what's, it? What's so special? Well, it's is about, it the Golden Gate Park stuff where the bird of prey is cloaked and Scotty's poking out the top, like, hey, but no human being walks through. <laughs> no human being goes hey, through man, that. Hey man, what's park. that dent in the ground? Yeah, there's a huge dent in the ground. Exactly, and it's very <laughs> visible. And you know that thing's parked during the daytime. Yeah, it's. Man, this movie stretches so much. It gets away with murder, almost. It's it really does. You think but, you think the Academy people saw the the whale's eye thing? They're like, oh, oh, wait. Ooh, is yeah. Oh God, it's hey so, man, so did you funny. see that? Did you see that? It was a whale's <laughs> eye right there. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, cinematographer. <laughs> uh, like these anti-whaling groups, uh, actually. For, oh God, I mean, don't get me wrong. These people can be a pain. The uh, they um they actually lobbied against Star Trek Four because, and I'll give Star Trek Four the credit for this. Those whales do look real, they do. But apparently, like ninety five percent of it's animatronics, and and they had to explain this to them. So like that's that's pretty impressive that they were able to pull that off. Uh, and miniatures too. There's some of them are miniatures. But the cinematography. I mean, even when they're I've seen San Francisco movies uh, that have much better cinematography that I don't think got the Oscar nod for it. Like Dirty Harry, I don't think got it. Or uh, hell, even um, Mrs. Doubtfire 
has beautiful San Francisco cinematography. And that didn't get that didn't get it. But this, like all the shots in San Francisco, for the most part, are, you know, like street corridors and, and, and stuff like that. Like there's nothing like that really jumps out or anything that it seems overly clever or anything that uh, even distracts from the, you know, the plot of the movie of like, oh, they're really going for something artsy here. So right. I don't don't really follow that. There's but. a lot of lo- I mean, the one thing is there's a lot of locations in this movie. Like there are a lot of there's a lot of location shooting, which is which with the other movies was completely absent. So it it's sure. it could certainly be one of those where it's like, wow, Star Trek's trying something new here. You know what? Why don't you toss him a nod? That'd be nice. Technical him. awards abound, dude. Real quick, think about those whalers that like they shoot that harpoon and dong. Oh, wait, what's that? Holy, what is that thing above us? <laughs> right. I love that they not only get the whales out of there, but they actually decloak to scare these guys. <laughs> and, and it looks like the bird of prey is actually alive and just staring at them, like you know what you did. <laughs> you know, are are you sorry? Because you should be. And it's it's so weird. It's just like, oh no! And they just turn the ship around and go back. Oh, it's so funny. But uh, anyway, any final thoughts on Star Trek Four? Um, no. I, like I said, I feel like by the end of that movie, when you see that it's it's the best the best moment seeing the new Enterprise and they're on board. They've even got the old six nineteen sixty six sound effects kicking up in the background as it's cruising out and uh, goes into warp. They even homage they they even homage the original theme uh, for a couple of notes. Yeah, it's yeah, it, which is really cool. I mean, it feels like, in a lot of ways, I wish this is where their series would have ended. And if it didn't make like all the money in the world for that year, it probably would have. Uh, but you know, it's 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 such a good, it's such an unexpectedly good movie. And that's right. especially when you're the fourth installment, and you're essentially doing a jump the shark type of moment here. You know, it's it's. It certainly sounds like it, and yeah. and I and I love them getting on the Enterprise, and it's basically like telling the audience, "Yep, and if we make another one, it's going to be the one you'll want." <laughs> well, well, maybe, yeah, probably not. No, it's <laughs> no, no. Let's just be honest. <laughs> but uh, all right, rating time. Well, what do you rate this on a scale of one to ten? Eight. Same here. I give this an eight. Easy, easy. Yeah, this is a great, great movie, and uh, I've one of my favorites of all the Star Trek movies. This sounds like it would have been a great Thanksgiving movie of 86. Right, yeah, because that was the release date for it, right? I think so, somewhere in, yeah. But that definitely would have fit. And, man, it would have carried over nicely into that Christmas holiday. Right, and, oh, well, it did. (laughs) It did a a bang-up job. So, eights all around for Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. So that'll wrap it up for this episode. And, uh, let's see, um, I... uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Real Change Pod, and we will be back for our next episode, which will be the uh, season finale for 1986. December 1986, we're going to be looking at Platoon. Oliver Stone's Platoon. In the meantime, like I said, check us out on Twitter at Real Change Pod. In the meantime, I am at CM underscore Stabs. I'm at William Rankin 83. And we'll see you for the next episode, Platoon.